If you have a Bible with you, you might already be there from our scripture reading. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today, and um, our focus will be on this subject of what we're calling holy interruption. I feel a, uh, I feel a bit of like resistance this morning, uh, spiritual resistance, so... Before we jump in, can we just take some time to pray? If you'll just pray where you're at, would you ask that God's word and his truth would come forth? Take a second and just pray for your own heart that it would be ready to receive what God has to speak to you today through his word. God, we are thankful for your word. We know that it's true and without fault. The word says of itself that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Divides joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And it's here to work even in our hearts and lives right now that that the truth of your word would reign over the lies maybe that the enemy tells us, the power of your word says that it would not return void. I pray that it would do the work that it needs to in us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through my lips of flesh a supernatural and spiritual uh, word to us that would bring fruit in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Holy interruption. What do we do when God steps in and brings interruption? Most of us don't like to be interrupted. If you're like me and you're pretty driven, you have a list of, uh, wake up with a to-do list, all the things you've got to get done, interruption is a great and bothersome thing. Uh, People stopping you to ask of things, your car not starting when it's supposed to, on and on we could go of the normal interruptions in our day. And we've called this series Holy Interruption because God literally steps in maybe the darkest time in history and turns the lights on. He sends these angels to bring a message of hope and instruction, of reconciliation that would come through Jesus. And he interrupted certainly not just the days of these people, um, but he brought an interruption uh, to... To the entire world, everything kind of turned on its head. And as I thought about it more and more this week, it's not, like, not likely that any of you would, uh, would be visited by uh, Gabriel this afternoon, although that's certainly possible. But God is still always interrupting our plans. He's placing us at crossroads where we have to determine what our next step might be. And I think what determines if it's a holy interruption or not a holy interruption is by how we respond to it. So that's what we're going to explore in our Advent series, a priest serving in the temple, a young teenage version hearing some earth-altering news that she would carry the Messiah, an honorable groom contemplating divorce in a situation that he does not understand, and then some simple shepherds in a field not seeing just one, but a host of 
angels. All of these doing their best, focus on what's ahead, and then God steps in and brings interruption. In Luke 1, let's start in verse 5, and this is a probably familiar passage to you. It says in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So just a little background on Zechariah. His name means remembered by God. But we see early on that he probably felt like God didn't hold up his end of the promise. Zechariah is living in a very dark time. It's been 400 years since the last prophecy came through Malachi to the people of Israel, and they've heard nothing from God since then. Uh, And so that's the darkness of where they're at. Plus, in this priestly order that Zechariah is a part, everything's kind of fallen to shambles because of the heavy taxation of Rome, because of uh, the Jewish people not giving what... uh, the Levitical law had described them to. Most priests had to work side jobs in addition to their responsibility of being um, a priest. And so that was the darkness. And then individually, he's married to Elizabeth, and we see that they're barren. And so this is a very dark time for, uh, for Zachariah specifically. But again, his name means remembered by God. We're going to see, of course, what God does here. Verse 39 tells us that he's from the hill country. So he probably has a little small synagogue that he's working at with a few people. There's over 18,000 priests spread around the Jewish nation. And they went on duty at the temple in Jerusalem for one week, twice a year. He was married again to Elizabeth. She was also of the priestly order as uh, from the line of Aaron. We see scripture tells us that they're righteous, pious, maybe in your translation. It simply means that they were faithful to God's call in their life and they lived in accordance with God's word. Again, the focus, uh, specific focus here is that uh, they're childless. If you happen to be someone who is struggling or has ever struggled with infertility, know this, that many of the women in Scripture that play significant roles in the history of redemption know exactly how you feel. This was seen as a curse in the Jewish culture, was closely associated with someone's sin. So most of the people probably looked at Elizabeth and thought that it was either because of her sin or her parents' sin that she is in this condition. But of course, Scripture tells us that's not the case here. This is a a physical problem, not a spiritual one. We see that they're old. Luke includes this to show that there's really no hope for them to conceive a child on their own. They had likely even quit praying for a child. They were really old. This condition is theologically used as a way of asserting God's direct control in the affairs of men. So this is their condition. A guy with no real desirable status, married to a daughter of a priest that can't have kids. And she might even herself have believed to have been cursed. May ask us this question, how long do we have to be told that we're cursed or sinful before we begin to believe it? How hopeless does a situation have to be, have to seem, until we quit praying altogether? 
Verse 8 shows us that he's serving in the temple. How this worked is that they would, uh, as they were selected to show up at the temple and do a numerous task, again, for one week, twice a year, they would roll the dice to see which of uh, the priests got the highest job of the day, and that would be to go into the Holy of Holies and burn incense in the temple. Many priests never got to do this. If you did get selected, it was a one-time deal, the one time in your life, and this was, uh, this was his Super Bowl moment. This is what he would have uh, shared with his kids uh, for, uh, and family members and his wife and you know, the stories that maybe your grandparents like to tell that you've heard hundreds of times, like these defining moments that make you smile and, and provide some culture even in your family. And stories, maybe if you're like in my family, they get embellished a little bit uh, every time. This is, this is his kind of story. He gets selected. He's going into the Holy of Holies. He's going to burn incense and complete his priestly duty for the day. They would have burned this incense twice a day. The smoke rising, symbolizing the prayers of God's people rising to heaven. Sometimes we need a visual reminder of this spiritual reality. Some other church traditions do this as part of their worship. Even now, Revelation 5 speaks of golden bowls in heaven where God collects the prayers of his people. Another symbolic picture that helps us know that God hears and remembers our prayers. So this is as close to, one's, to God's presence that one ever got. Only the high priest could enter in, the one that was selected. Two assistants would help him with the formality for a while. Then they would leave the one to burn the incense. Look, catch up in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That's the good side. You want them on the right side. Angels on the left side meant that, uh, that you probably were not purified before you walked in and might not make it out. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There would have been worshipers outside waiting on the priest to come out and give some sort of benediction, and then they would all go home. But this day certainly turned out to be a little different. We see angel here over 23 times in the book of Luke. We see uh, angelic visitations of some sort. Only two named uh, angels in the Bible. Uh, one of them here is Gabriel. Zachariah started, was startled. He was gripped with fear, of course. This was the typical angel's greeting. When they would show up, it scares people to death. Yesterday, Ashley and I were sitting on the couch watching TV, and then all of a sudden, behind us, Ellie appears. She has got to be a ninja. I literally have no idea how she does it. Uh, Ashley literally jumped off the couch. It scared her. So imagine uh, not being a uh, sweet nine-year-old behind you, but uh, an angel of the Lord. No wonder it scares people to death, right? 
And he immediately proclaims this promise in verse 13. He says, your prayer has been heard. And we're a little conflicted in understanding exactly what Zechariah has been praying for. We know he's praying for a son, but it seems, the context seems to seem that at least Zechariah has quit praying for a son, or at least quit praying with faith. Based upon the rest of the passage, we know he's at least praying for the salvation of Israel, which would be the Messiah. He had been praying for them to conceive a son, but it seems as if he's lost hope. John in Hebrews means God is gracious. John would later preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. The only way that he would be able to preach such things as forgiveness is if grace existed. Without grace, there is no forgiveness. Aren't you glad for grace this morning? He would make a straight path of the Lord with his life. It says that many would rejoice at his birth. His birth fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy that one would come to prepare a way for the greater prophet, that being Jesus. Verse 15 says that he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. This is an idiom which means that he'll be a special part of God's plan in redeeming history. Of course, the same thing on a greater level would be said of Jesus. Talked about him taking a Nazarite-like vow, someone completely devoted to God's service. And that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a way of communicating the power and presence of God in a person. This special presence and activity of the Spirit had been missing again, as I said earlier, for 400 years. And now it was to return in his son, John. Again, this is one of the themes that we see again in Luke, that every believer has the Holy Spirit. And to allow the Spirit to control our lives in every aspect of our being is our job as a Christian Paul would later say in the book of Ephesians that we should continually be being filled with the Spirit. And how does that work exactly? Is that we listen for God's voice and we obey His prompting. Notice also that it says that John the Baptist would have the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This shows God's initiation and blessing, not only in conception, but even in fetal spiritual development. This is God at work all the way. These guys were old, beyond childbearing age, but also barren. God supernaturally answers their prayer. These words also give us some insight into the heart and mind of God. Fetal spiritual development. Have you ever thought about that, parents? That as you're carrying your child in your womb, that God is already maturing them spiritually, that he is at work in them. In verse 41, we read that John leapt inside the womb in the presence of Jesus, who was in Mary's womb. It's a pretty incredible thing. We see the sovereignty and majesty of God here. While this fetus was in Elizabeth's womb, God named him John and filled him with the Holy Spirit. We know that this will be a special child. Verse 16, we see that John's primary task was to spiritually prepare Israel for the Messiah. And that's what he would come and do. His baptism of repentance was a message of repentance and restoration. He was the first true prophet, as I said before, since Malachi. Malachi 4.6, where the Old Testament kind of leaves off. Here's this, 5 and 6. Beholds, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. You see the similarity between that and verse 16. It's John's role, someone like Elijah coming to prepare the way of the Lord. But I think the focus on this text really kind of lies in how Zechariah responds. So you get the image, Zechariah burning incense, sees the angel. The angel says, hey, your prayers have been heard, man. You're going to have a son. And not only a son, but this son is going to be pretty special. God's got big plans for him. He's the one that the last prophet Malachi had talked about coming to prepare a way for the Lord. And it's just too much at that moment for Zechariah to take in. So many prayers being answered, maybe even in that one little moment. Notice, too, that God's answer was better than anything that they could have hoped for. It was better than what they even knew to ask. Do you know that's how it always is with God? You may wonder why He hasn't come through yet, but it's because He's got a greater plan And with our limited perspective, often we don't understand why why He doesn't come through, how or when we want Him to come through. But that's because our thinking is so limited and certainly is the case of Zechariah here. Let's listen to his response in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. This is just the, the funniest little predicament here. Look at the answer here. Uh, I wonder how much sarcasm was in this uh, response. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. How much more of a sign do you want, buddy? I'm an angel. The only one that you have ever seen. And I'm standing right next to you, telling you some things that you didn't know that I knew that you'd been praying for. I just think about us and how, how we, we always want more signs, right? Like, God, if you're really there. And then we look back on how God has moved in our lives and how he's been faithful to us and how he's brought us to salvation, how he's uh, given us the gift of faith, how he's working in us to conform us to the image of Jesus, not to mention all the other things that he's literally physically come through for us on our behalf and yet he asks us to take a step of faith for him and the first thing we say is god i need i need a sign man you know how's how do i know this is not you know something else going on here the same came to jesus and asked for a sign you remember that these people came and asked jesus jesus if you just give us a sign and jesus is like i'm the son of god standing here even if i gave you a sign you wouldn't believe Because your focus is on you and not me. His response is one that conveys his unbelief. How will I know that this is true? Such conviction in my heart this week as I read this passage again and again because this is just like me. Not to believe God's word to me. Zechariah basically responds with doubt. His doubt was the result of him looking at his current situation and not the power of God. We see Zechariah as a good, good guy. Let's not give him such a hard time at first, right? He was a faithful servant. He believed wholeheartedly with his head. 
but doubt had overtaken his heart. Zechariah was working hard for God as a priest and his little side hustle to keep things going. And, and, uh, and he was righteous as a pious before God and he and his wife both. But somehow doubt had overtaken his heart as he prayed on behalf of others, saying all the right things. But in his heart of hearts, he has grown jaded and cynical. Now, this is a word for us, church. When you live in a broken world, and there's brokenness all around you, and if God grants you the grace, you'll see the brokenness even inside of you. And all of that will make a dangerous recipe for us growing cynical and jaded. If I can be honest as a pastor, that's certainly the temptation that I face, that we face. Ash and I were talking about that even last night in the car. How you walk with people who are really hurting. And then you, and then you have uh, these men of God who are leading the church and these churches. And so many of them, so many of my close friends have fallen away from the faith that moved from serving God to completely rejecting God. And then you walk with people. And you want them to become like Christ. And you want to see Christ formed in them. And, and you serve them. And yet, tragedy happens or something comes and they seem to fall away from the faith. And if we're not careful, our hearts will become jaded and cynical. So such a real danger to us. Because God hasn't moved like we expected Him to in the past. We've been praying for a long time and it's so easy to lose heart. The problem is, is our focus becomes on the results, not on serving God. Does that make sense? It, it becomes on what we hope to get out of it. You remember when Jesus is with Peter, after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and he meets Peter. Remember, Peter's out there fishing, and there's a little charcoal fire, and puts the fish on there, and it's kind of the same, similar story from early in the book of Luke that had happened with Peter, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. You remember it? He says, Peter, if you love me, go feed my sheep. The result was never that the sheep would grow or mature. That was certainly the hope. But Jesus says the key is if you love me, then serve me in this way. And I think that's something that Zachariah is losing here. I think that's something we collectively lose. That we're willing to go to bat for God and be a part of His mission as long as we see results fairly quickly. Yet you see this faithful lineage of priests, and I mean, there's no reason that, I mean, there's every reason that Zechariah's feeling this way. He hasn't heard from God for 400 years. He just simply didn't believe Gabriel's promise. He was in a spot almost just like Abraham, if you remember the Old Testament, but he didn't respond like Abraham. Paul said in Romans 4.19 of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old. Makes you feel good. Or when he considered the bareness of his wife Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. You see the contrast between Zechariah and Abraham, both of them in a very similar condition. But Abraham's faith grew because of the promise of God when Zechariah's faith was found weakened. 
And again, it's not the amount of faith that matters. Jesus said it only takes a mustard seed of faith. It's who our faith is in. Zechariah was looking at the human anatomy and the condition that they were in and saying that this would be impossible instead of looking at God and his supernatural ways to seeing what he might do. Again, angel, the angel responds, uh, I'm Gabriel, God sent me. You know the one you probably learned about in Daniel? I've been in the presence of God. He sent me to tell you this. It's going to come to pass. God always keeps his word. And then we see the, the result of his doubt. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my word, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them. And they realized And he remained mute, sorry, in verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. It's interesting that his punishment was being deaf and mute. We see later on that the people are actually making signs back to him. I also think it's interesting in this passage that he continues his service for the next few days before he goes home and tries to convey this to Elizabeth. We see what happens. Let's skip down a little bit to see how this story ends. Verse 57. Now time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. This was a miracle in its own right, without knowing the prophecy that was coming to be fulfilled. And they rejoiced with her, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. Of course, that was the general principle or practice of the day. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. You can hear everyone get quiet at the moment as this is happening. They tried to reason with her. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. They they thought Elizabeth was like hijacking the situation because Zechariah couldn't talk. He's moving around, reaching for an etch-a-sketch here. Finds a writing tablet, he writes back, his name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then? Will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? And then Zechariah is going to break into song. 
really a poem to some kind of rhythm. And you know in Scripture, and really just in reality, you read poems different than you read history books. Poems are supposed to evoke something in your imagination and how you feel. As much as it's telling you what you need to know, a song is meant to bring something out of you. You would feel something. And a third of Scripture is written in this very way. Its goal is not just didactic to teach, but something more that we would feel something. Look in verse 67. This is the passage that uh, Weston read, and we won't go through the whole thing. His father filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. This is called the Benedictus. It's Latin for praise be. Churches would recite this for thousands of years and of course still is part of liturgy in a lot of places. The first part of the song, 68 through 75, is written in past tense, although it hasn't happened yet. In Greek, this is the aorist tense. In Hebrew, it would be known as the prophetic perfect. It's speaking about a future event in the past tense as if it's already happened, although it hasn't happened. Zechariah's ten months of silence birthed in him a depth of faith that he had never known before. As he speaks in verse 68, he's saying, For he has visited and redeemed his people. Jesus had not yet even been born, much less lived the perfect life, much less died on the cross for our sins. And yet Zechariah is saying in this prophetic perfect tense, as if this has already happened. How do you speak about future events with certainty even though you haven't seen them yet. This is called faith. Hebrews 11 says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see or we have not yet seen. And isn't this the cornerstone of all the people of God that we would live with hearts and lives of faith? Aren't we gathered here today to, because we believe and we have faith in what Jesus has done in the past, certainly the first advent where he came to visit us, but that we, we showed up this morning with the longing that the second advent is going to happen and we live and we've rearranged our entire lives knowing that Jesus will come back and that one day we're going to hear a trumpet blown in the sky and all those who have died in Christ will be raised first and then all those who remain that will be gathered up with them. Isn't that not our hope? Isn't that what Paul said, that if that such a thing is not true, then we are wasting our lives. That should be, right? That should be the anthem of our lives, that we are people of great faith. And we have great hope even this morning, as the world seems to be wasting away and getting worse and worse. And even the, the, the sacred moments of, of time and of our calendar, things like Christmas, are being just eaten up with materialism. Think about your own schedule this month and how crazy it's going to be. And that's with us intentionally saying no to a lot of things. But there should be something so central about God's people that we would be people of faith, that the watching world would look at us and think that we are alien, that we are weird, that we don't fit in, that something strange is going on here. What in your life can... You speak about this way. What do you have your faith in? It's so liberating to remember that God has promised it and it will come to pass. This gift of silence that looked like punishment for Zechariah was really a great gift. 
He was put in time out for 10 months. And when he came out, his heart is full of faith. The immediate thing he speaks is of what God is going to do as if it has already happened. Let me close by asking us, what is our response? We see Zechariah's response, one initially of of doubt. What is our response? Do we really believe that God will keep his promises? Do we believe that he could bring real change? Do we believe that God could do such a work in our city? Where most of the people in our city or all the people, our hearts would be turned to God. Would we believe that God could do such a work in our nation? Think about the people you know that are the furthest away from God. Normally all of us have a few family members on the edges like that. And we've seen them up close. And if we're honest, we, we really doubt that God could do such an incredible work in their life. Do we believe God could bring such a sweeping move of the Spirit in our city, in our country, that this could be, in the coming days or coming months, a third great awakening? Or do we just settle for the status quo? Church, have we quit praying? Zechariah's sin here was one of unbelief. He immediately focused on the impossibility of the situation instead of focusing on the power of God. Speaking of this very instance, the angel would later tell Mary in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. In a nutshell, you can magnify yourself. You can magnify your problems. Or you can magnify God. And you can't do them at the same time. You can magnify yourself. That you have the strength to overtake it. That you're going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That you're going to handle the situation until you run into a situation like this where you have no control. Well, at that point, it seems in the life of Zechariah, he begins to magnify the impossibility. Magnify your problems. Has it ever happened to you that you got so focused on your own problems, that you lost faith in God altogether? Or you can magnify the Lord, that you can speak, even as Zechariah did in this prophetic perfect tense of God is going to do it. To magnify the Lord is to declare His, is to declare his greatness, to ascribe greatness to God's power and His love and His plan and His grace. Church, how do we handle holy interruptions? Again, unlikely, maybe that you'll see an angel on the way home, but you might. But God normally brings interruption in different ways, does He not? For most of us, interruption is a frustration. Many of us so busy, we wouldn't even notice if God had brought a holy interruption into our path when it comes. But what if we learn to experience interruption differently? Rather than viewing it all as the enemy of productivity and creativity, what if we viewed our lives as vessels of God's grace for the sake of others? I mean, he, he, He's the one that manages our lives anyway, right? That
If we open ourselves to embrace a theology of holy interruption, might we usher in a newness, a revelation of life or story that could change our lives in ways that otherwise would simply not be possible? Bonhoeffer spoke about this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our, in quotations, more important tasks, and miss altogether an opportunity to be used greatly of God. What are we waiting expectantly for? I want to finish by reading you the last part of Zechariah's song, and then we'll lead to communion. Zechariah moves from speaking about who Jesus will be and speaks specifically to his child. This is his prayer or hope over his child. Maybe you've prayed these prayers over your children. Remember when my kids were born and my brothers and sisters' kids were born, it was really important for my dad to be there because he wanted, within the first hour of that child being born, he wanted to whisper in their ear that God had a great plan for their life. This prayer over them, and this is what you see. He turns and he talks. You can see Zachariah beaming with pride, the baby, the relatives, Elizabeth there, and this is what he sings over his child. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways and give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As a father, I've prayed prayers similar to this over my kids for their future. As a matter of fact, try to do this every night. What if I could ask you, parents, what are you praying for over your kids? I encourage you to write that down somewhere and pray it and get it again. And as God gives you a burden on your heart for them, that you'd be praying over them and their spouse and their ministry. What are you praying for specifically? What are you asking God to do? And if God showed up today and brought such a holy interruption into your life, would you be like Abraham, whose faith grew because of it, or would you be like Zechariah, who doubted initially? Let me pray for us. And we're going to spend some time taking communion, responding to the message of God's Word. And I just pray as you just sit there silently that you would spend some time asking God about the real condition of your heart, not the pretend stuff that we put on the face for, What's God doing in your heart? What's He stirring in you? Some of us in this room in a very dark place. Darkness may be all around us. Feel hemmed in like Zechariah did with darkness on every side. Are you praying that God still brings breakthrough? Do you believe He can? Do you believe He will? Church, don't stop praying. God, you know the condition of our heart and we're laid bare before you. We've got nothing 
to hide, nothing to earn, nothing to prove. Pray in these moments of response as we confess and repent, as we prepare ourselves to partake in communion in just a moment. Holy Spirit, that you would convict, that you would encourage that there would be people even in this room that would take a step of faith, crossing a line of faith, maybe for the first time in their life, to give their heart and life to you. Lord, that we would enter into this season of Advent with anticipation and expectation. We could say, as Zechariah did at the end in his song of faith, claiming your promises as if they've already happened. Would you are good to us. Do a work in our hearts and lives today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Our communion servers will be here on either side. There's no rush. Take time as you need. When you're ready, you can come. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be part of God's family. So the way we do it here is we just pick up the bread and dip it in the cup and partake. I'll be standing in the back if you'd like to pray for someone. Again, there's no rush. Take time. Do what God's leading your heart to do. Just see.